Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health Options show with Richard Talk to Me Guy, and Sherry Edwards is off building the portal. SoundHealthPortal.com. It really is just amazing to see what she's doing over there, her and the team. Now you can, what we used to do by hauling a laptop around, you can go online at SoundHealthPortal.com, and for example, at the SoundHealth Portal, you can go and look at services and then look at campaigns and campaigns are free things that you can you sign up for a free account they don't spam you they don't sell anything they're just so they can communicate with you you sign up for a free account you'll do two 45 second recordings right online through your computer better if you have a small microphone of some kind just because it improves the recording quality for the vocal print and then you'll choose one of the campaigns that are free. I think currently she might have bio diet, golf. Yes, really true. You can improve your golf swing uh, quite dramatically, from what I hear, by going through the vocal analysis of that. Or PTSD, or allergies, or might be bio diet. They rotate through the campaigns. And you can do those two 45 second recordings, they'll walk you through this easily and you'll choose the campaign you want and submit that, and within a couple of hours to 12 hours, you'll get reports back with a just ton of information that you can then sit down and read yourself and or then take to your healthcare practitioner and talk about all of that, the things that are imbalanced or you know that seem high or low. It's right on the report. Also, one of my favorite tools that Sherry has is the Nano Voice, which is a free piece of software that she's given away forever that I've always said, why are you giving that away? You can use the, now you can use the Nano Voice at the portal. Again, going to soundhealthportal.com and look for Nano Voice. And with the Nano Voice, you can do a recording that'll be rendered immediately. So you just do a 45 second recording. And what I use it for a lot is to check on supplements or things that I'm going to add into my diet. So first thing in the morning, typically on an empty stomach, just because it gives a better read, I will take a vocal print, and then I'll take a supplement that I want to check out and wait about 20 to 30 minutes, and then I'll take another vocal print. So you take a second vocal recording or print, and you then compare the two charts. And in this instance, it'll give you a, a written report, but also you'll see a analysis of vocal print, meaning a literal, it's like a waveform, but it's been altered by its run through the software. So you can see if there are spikes. It's a visual thing. You'll see this. It could be a spikes of something might happen. Nothing may happen. There may be very minimal change in your vocal print. Or you could see something be high or low, meaning whatever you've just taken is stimulating something or causing something to drop, and you want to be aware of that. You want to be aware of those changes. You can just stop there if you want. Or as you learn more information about what the vocal print is or the waveform of your voice that you're looking at, and Sherry does a lot of classes online for free. I think there are some demos available through the Sound Health Portal. And if they're not at the Sound Health Portal, you can always go to soundhealthoptions.com, which is the main website, and look for classes there. And they're either online free classes where she demos the portal or and or other software packages, but you can learn more just by attending demos where Sherry will show you how things work. And it's really powerful to have now available online. It really does 
amp up the power of its usability versus uh, having a computer dedicated to it. And I highly recommend it. This is the point at which I always say, because it's always true, this is one of those shows, particularly with Bill Protzman's work, with being more human, being human, let's just be that in this day and age. That would be amazing. This is one of those shows that you're going to want to listen to again and or share with your friends, and you can do that easily by about 15 minutes after I end the show. You'll hear the outro music, and about 15 minutes after that, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and click on Sound Health Radio, and the replay link will be there, which will also take you back to the show notes. And or in about 20 to 30 minutes, you can go to your favorite podcast aggregator, which means something like iTunes or Dogcatcher or Pocket Casts or Google Podcasts. The two last ones, Pocket Casts and Google Podcasts, are both uh, I like a lot because they're both cross-platform, meaning they work on all forms. And you can also easily share casts to your friends. And this is one of those shows where on Being Human is, I just think, a really positive thing, talking about the human spirit. And having more of that, in this day and age, it would be really great to have more of that. This will be a wonderful show to share. Bill Protzman's work has included board positions with the Guitars for Vets and San Diego Veterans Coalition. He's been instrumental in connecting thousands of military service members and veterans with honor tickets to the largest healing music organization in his town, the San Diego Symphony. Organizations like Consumer Action, the Society for Financial Education, and Professional Development, as well as the American Music Therapy Association, have all been delighted with his keynote presentations. For his foundational work in establishing music as self-care, he received an Inspiring Hope Award of Excellence from the National Board for Behavioral Health. In addition to being a successful IT entrepreneur, Bill holds magna cum laude degrees in piano performance and creative writing and has concertized and performed for many years with a focus on bringing music to audience in non-traditional ways. Bill joins us today to discuss his book, More Than Human, The Value of Cultivating the Human Spirit in Your Organization. Welcome, Bill. Hey, Richard. It's great to be here. Happy happy, uh, Sunday. You too. Thank you. I want to jump right into a slightly, I'm going to do a little bit of jumping here. We're going to hopscotch around with questions, which from listening to you talk, I know that you're, you're fully equipped. Yeah, I can answer um, questions. Right. Uh, my first question is, have you always been a spiritual person? Oh, my gosh. Your... Okay, I've got chills right now because I've been wondering about that. And especially in our you know, day and age, you start to question your, your core, what's inside. And I think that the real answer is yes, but the awareness. You know, the older we get, that awareness kind of creeps up on you. And then you get to a place where you, you're more accepting of that, and then you get to a place where you want to put it to work. And I, I think so that the answer is yes. And, and I would say that that's true for all of us that pithy little saying about how we're spiritual beings trapped in a human experience, I suspect that's more and more true all the time. 
And with great respect for atheists, too. This isn't about whether you have a religion or a belief set or anything like that. It's just about us, what we really are, like consciousness and mathematical equations in the eighth dimension. I don't know. Something that's not physical. So, yeah, I'm going to go with yes on that. Okay. And how did... You were in the IT world. How did, right. How did being a spiritual person... And we'll, and, and we'll get back to spiritual. I'll, I'll ask you a question about that in a few minutes. But how did that fit into the IT world? Because I, I, I had a brief stint. This will completely date me. This is so long ago. It was a DOS-based software company. That's how mm. old I am. People will be looking up DOS as we speak. I can feel them typing going, what the heck is that? So it was a DOS-based company. So I'd been around coders and not necessarily IT, that's slightly different, but I've been around sort of that kind of technological coding crowd. And how did being spiritual in your realm of IT, did those two play well together? Well, it can be a conflict, and, and I really get that. Uh, I worked for a company that uh, we were coding in DBase over DOS, so yeah, <laughs> it's, it's old. <laughs> But, you know, the same thing, at that time, um, the Apple computer was new, and there were games like Pac-Man. It was Ms. Pac-Man, I think, on Apple. <laughs> and um, the coders would, like, drop everything and just go and play Pac-Man for hours and hours and hours. And then one of them, I think, split off eventually, formed his own company, and started coding, and coding games. And my point here is that I believe I was too focused on, like, the grunt work of IT to realize that there was this incredibly fun, playful side to it. And yeah, it takes discipline to write a game. I'm not going to deny that, but look at the result that you get. You're either like, you know, grinding away on some accounting software or you're playing games that open a world that's brand new. I think probably the gaming is a more spiritual experience, but you know, I'm, I was in the box. So I was focused on the, I was like denying myself the opportunity to play in IT which is an opportunity I don't deny myself anymore. I just went back into an old, old game called Myst, if anybody ever played that, mm. you know, wow. um, and replayed it. And it's so beautiful to see what that technology was capable of doing and look at it with a new, fresh sort of set of eyes. Of course, I've forgotten everything I learned about the clues in the game, but man, so I, I was running back and forth between the spiritual world and the IT world for a long time and so it, until I started to lower my resistance and allow the the more um, playful, spontaneous, funny side of IT to begin to work with me. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think I I played in a harder world. Well, played. Uh, no, there was play. I was a chef on and off for twenty years. Yeah, and that's a tough one. Yeah. In spite of the romanticized food network world of we're all in white coats and using tweezers to put things in places, it is cacophony at all times. I can't never, imagine anything course, more stressful, you know. I've never been in a kitchen, but you're a concert pianist. Really? <laughs> no, true. <laughs> really? Really? I don't have to deal um, with anybody else on the stage. I can just. Well, that myself. is true, yes. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, this is the ultimate teamwork in combination with people who uh, uh, I think really that for a long time, I don't know if it's as true, it is, true as it is now, was then as it is now, um, that 
I think chefs are artists or I know a lot of chefs and much as as such as myself who are somewhere on what we like to call the spectrum now, Mm -hmm. meaning you have either you have a communication issue or you have a twitch or you not good with eye contact or you don't really like being around people or, you know, all sorts of characteristics that make us hyper-focused and good at what we do because we're hyper-focused doing it. Now, as the as sort of the lead chef, you're hyper-focused at maybe 100 things at once because you have to monitor everything in the flow of how it goes. And it was really hard, and, I'm not, and I wasn't making six figures a year. And I'm not martyred about it. It was just it was really hard work. However, the one thing that we all had at the end of the day is we'd sit around and give each other, you know, it would be like a scene out of a bar scene with guys giving each other grief. You know, it's mm-hmm. not really... How are you feeling? How's your wife? How's your kids? Although there was some of that. But there was a lot of real, you know, close intimacy in the sense of after work, we were mostly kind and caring for each other. There might be some bad languaging back and forth, but it would be that. There was that, like you say, there's that play thing. And I was always sort of, you know, I'd get out of the play thing. I didn't really drink. I wasn't into drugs. So I'd sort of just wander off. And I, I too, missed out on some of the play aspect because it's really such hard work that the gang would like to go do something afterwards to blow some of that off, which I think is what gaming does. And so I had a similar experience of I was too busy taking it seriously. I, I, I hadn't gone to culinary school. I just trained under a mean chef, and but he gave me great skills. And but it was the same. It was a very similar experience for me of not taking the time to really play. And then once I did discover that, it was like, oh, we all do actually care about each other. It's not just yelling and shouting. And th- and that itself took that that itself was a bit of a schism for me because of the shift from yelling and screaming in the kitchen, which there's a lot more of than there is on TV. Uh, to then afterwards realizing that that wasn't really personal, even though it sounded and felt very personal, which we'll talk about tone later, but it wasn't really, it was just stress in the moment. And then later on, it's all like, you know, sitting around, and as we all grow a little older together, there was conversation about kids and family and wife and moms and weddings and births and deaths. And it was a very intimate setting, especially for, for typically guys who weren't equipped for intimacy. So I think now I, now I want to jump slightly differently. I want to talk about communication, but I I want to develop it from the perspective of humans learn to hunt by watching wolves. And what that means is when wolves hunt, they all follow the pack leader. And the pack leader sees the prey, and they're all watching the – they're not looking around – where is it? Where is it? They're watching the pack leader because the pack leader knows. And they watch the pack leader, and when the pack leader all turns and looks at them and then looks the direction they're about to go, because wolf pack leaders can be male or female, they then go. So we learned to hunt silently from wolves. And so I'm big on eye contact communication, which is funny since I talk into a microphone for a living and I rarely see people. I'm in a studio by myself. How do we, in this, in this age of everybody staring at their devices, how do we reincorporate that 
eye contact, heartfelt communication, which is your, you know, what your book is about, being more than human. How do we do that? Gosh, I, I think we're inventing that one. It's, uh, it's essential to be in each other's energy, I guess, is a good way of saying it. And we can do that audibly. But humans, like you've, you've pointed out, are, are more social. We need to have the completion of eye contact as well as the audible, you know, the stream that's coming at us. But the two-way nature of that, I think, is the key. If, if you can get a two-way going, you can achieve something, something more than email, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I, I think we need to strive for. Internet marketing is so full of just blasted out there. And there's nothing authentic about a blast. Yeah, it's a big net. You'll probably catch a few people. But to do the real work, the real work of being human, you can't do it by not being human <laughs> or, or depriving yourself of skills in an area. Um, I, I'm thinking for some reason of that marvelous scene from the movie um, about time. It doesn't really matter. You could do this, but the, the movie did it so well. And there's two couples that randomly meet at a restaurant and they happen to be seated together at the same table. They don't know each other, of course, but uh, during dinner, they fall in love. The trick is that from the moment you walk into the restaurant, everything is totally black. There is no light and all the servers are blind. So you, as the sighted person, enter this environment that's very foreign to you, and all you've got is like touch and, and sound and taste, and you have to complete your entire meal this way. And it's, it's just such a fascinating idea. I wish they'd spent a lot more time on it. But it brought these people, of course, together. It's fiction, but let's, let's, let's assume that you're in that place. What would you do if you couldn't see and you, all you had to do to relate to the people in the room I had nothing to do with sight. You'd be able to do it. Well, and as a chef, I I know people that I, I think these are, I don't think there's one in San Francisco, but I think there, I know of restaurants, I, I believe in L.A., where they have that very thing. You go that's into so cool. a restaurant that's dark, black, you, I mean, it's not a surprise. It's like, oh, we're dining in the dark, although I know some people that have been surprised by that. And the food servers are blind, so they're comfortable moving around blind, and everybody else is seated. And the people that I, I've known, a couple of people that have had the experience, and, and they said once they kind of settled into the, like being freaked out by it, it really does develop your senses of taste and smell. Can you imagine, like, tasting food that you don't know what you're going to taste? <laughs> and, and, and having you know, this amazing, you know, experience. And having this amazing experience, you know, as, as a, a, you know, chefs will design a, a plate. Well, there's actually a term called plating, and that's how you style the food or present the food. So that's completely taken away. It could be just food piled on a plate. Could be, <laughs> which is kind of amusing. But it's yeah, it it must be amazing to because your senses actually come too. They're really enhanced. Like I've worked with blind people uh, doing photography and some films, and their other senses are heightened because they they have that sense gone. They can't see, so they they hear, they taste, they smell. Uh, taste maybe not, but 
hearing and smell is heightened. Sense of touch is even slightly heightened. So I think it would be quite exciting and challenging to dine in the dark. It seems like spillage could be a problem. That's yes, the you same have thing to, I think of like. No sauces. <laughs> no sauces, no waving your arms around, no glasses of wine on the table. Somebody would have to hand me my wine. But I think it would be awesome, the, the experience. And is there some way that we could take, is there, is there part of being more human? And as you say, as, the book, as your book title says, Cultivating the Human Spirit, in your organization, we'll get to organizations. But is there some way, do we have to practice? Is it like you being a concert pianist? I mean, do we have to practice somehow? How can we, can we just set down our devices and actually start communicating again? Communicating again? Or do we need to have some practice and relax into it? What well, do you think I, at this I guess point? the bad news is that, yes, practice is necessary. But the good news is, oh, my gosh, what you can do once you have some skill I'm, I'm reminded of a story from long ago in Toastmasters when a guy who had immigrated with his wife from South Africa in the 70s, so 1970s people, said to me, you know, it's just weird in America. Nobody seems to be able to, to have dialogue. So that was 1970. We were talking heads. Yeah. And um, so, yes, I completely I'm down with it. If there's a skill that can help you be more um, in yourself, and that means like in your consciousness, in your heart, not in your body as well, but like completely in inhabiting that thing that is you, um, practice that skill. I'm not a great listener, so I've had to learn to listen better all my life. And then uh, the other skill I've had to learn is to... uh, really think before talking and this is something like my mom started me on that skill you guys it's been that long and I'm still learning it but by taking the time to just listen and then really thinking about the right response I mean those are a couple of communication skills that are pretty basic to everybody and they're a great way to start if you've never been in a conversation or all your conversations are online uh, to try to open it up a little bit and see what's there. But yeah, practice works. And you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be fluent. You know, you have to be able to speak English well enough to talk to other people who speak, speak English. And that's about as much as you need to go unless you're going to be some orator or teacher or whatever. It's pretty easy to get along with, you know, some basics in a language. And this is the language of uh, listening or seeing or speaking. It's much different than oh, what do they call it, like uh, one-way celebrity, I think, is a term I've heard, <laughs> where yeah. you think you're a big deal, but nobody else really knows who you are. Right. Yeah. Well, I know you're, in your book you talked about uh, from your childhood, you discovered, I think, when you were playing the piano, I might have this reversed, but it's so it, – Early on, you discovered that you could express emotions playing the piano that you couldn't express in another form. Yes. So, guys, um, I I was given a great gift by being forced to play the piano because I got an emotional language. And it wasn't one that I spoke. The family didn't allow for very big expression of emotions. So that's, that's pretty normal, stiff upper lip. You know, that's how we kind of, we guys are raised not to feel anything. But I was, you know, for a long time, about nine years it took before I liked it, forced to play the piano. And your job at the piano or at any instrument 
is to go deeply into the emotion that is in the music and convey it with some degree of skill and authenticity to an audience that's listening. If you can't feel it, it won't be authentic. So whatever you're playing, even if it's row, row, row your boat, uh, you can bring emotion to that, provided that you can find it within the music. And by, this, by practicing that skill of trying to get to the deeper levels of the emotion in the music, um, you then develop a fluency in emotional language that I don't think even the people who are teaching emotional inte intelligence teach. It, you can identify feelings, and that's good, but to feel them yourself really deeply and really have a way to process them and something that you can use to bring them out that is not destructive if they're tough feelings, well, you've, you've got to have a bigger practice for that. And music, of course, even listening is a great way of acquainting yourself with the emotions that exist in the world and, and your own personal experience of them and what you can do with the energy that comes to you that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because as I think about when I was younger, they tried to get me, uh, this started in junior high and then in high school, they thought that I should play a musical instrument because I was, I was dyslexic as a kid. I still am, but I've worked on it. So I talk for a living instead of reading. It's much better. It <laughs> um, works. And they thought that, you know, music would be some sort of thing. So I tried a bunch of different instruments. And I could, you know, kind of play the guitar. I could play the trumpet okay, yada, yada. Eventually I got into the marching band and orchestra. And I ended up being in the percussion section. And because we were primarily a marching band and then a concert band, I ended up being the bass drummer. And I never really learned to read music well, I just learned to hear the music and know where I was supposed to be playing, which gets trickier when you're in the orchestra later and you're the guy on the cymbals. There's True. No, there's no pull-up from being bad on the cymbals. There's <laughs> no pull-up. There's no correction. There's nothing you can do. The orchestra leader looks at you badly, and it's you're eh, nothing. There's no hope. Um, but it was the one place where I could... I think in some ways it helped my dyslexia because it allowed me to get rhythm, hold rhythm, because when you're in the marching band, really it's the bass drum that keeps the rhythm for the band to march to and play to. And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't even think about it. I, otherwise, I would have been like, oh, my goodness, I'm responsible for all that. There was none of that going on. I was just doing it because it was, got me outside, and it got me doing left-right motions and marching, and I think it helped with my learning issues. And... So music for me was, a, I had a completely different thing, but yet it did end up being very effective. I was in the marching band for four years. And I'm not a marching band kind of guy. I don't care about sports. I was in it for the community, the pack, and for the motion seemed to improve my mental state in, in many ways. So I find music very effective. And I was very aware of the effect of the the feeling of a playing a percussion, percussive instrument because it's so, when you're booming away on the drum, you really feel that in your body. And some way that, that lit things up in a good way or release some things, and I'm suspecting you as a pianist have had a similar experience where when you're playing, you're feeling that music, aren't you? I have to. It, I don't know how to do it any other way. It's very difficult to practice because... When, you, when you're trying to put the notes in your fingers, there's this mental component to it 
And the mental component is like making the physical stuff happen. And it's kind of fighting with the emotional component that knows how it wants to sound and what the feeling is. And so it's like practice is such conflict for me because I have to go through that process to learn the stuff. But I'm always gnashing at the bit to be able to just play it with the feeling that I want. It's a real, um, it's a real dichotomy. And, and I think it's one that's necessary. I think most of us in some way need that, whatever our occupation is. We need to get to that place where we're reconciling feeling and, and function and, and do it well. And I've, I'm trying to form this into a question rather than a statement. Is No, I can't. Um, so that leads me back to communication because back to – I'm a fan of wolves. I, I like – well, and dogs. If I, if I want to know the truth about a person, I'll hang out with a dog and watch the dog because dogs don't have any agenda. They don't care if your butt's too fat in those pants or any of that kind of stuff. They want to know if you're good, if you're kind, if you're safe – if you're going to feed them, <laughs> if you're going to scratch them behind the head, they're very upfront with their feelings and their emotions. They like you. They don't like you. They trust you. They don't trust you. So I like watching dogs, and I'm a fan of wolves and, and have studied wolves a lot and how they hang out and play and what they are. And speaking of the tone that you're talking about on the, on the piano and things, talk about tone of how we speak. It's not only the words that we're using – but there are times it does make me flash back to when the German chef I trained under would yell at me. <laughs> I couldn't always understand him, but I knew what he was saying. You got the point, and, and yeah. I got the point. So how do we – can we retrain to learn tone about how we express ourselves? Because uh, I'll go back for just a moment to your IT world. There, I, I have known brilliant coders who, pl who code like you play music. Just you know, you see them sit down and really, it is like a scene in a movie where they just somehow flow into the machine, and boy, they're amazing. Yes. And yet, their tone sucks. And when I say that, I mean in terms of how they communicate. Even how do vocal we work tone. on that? Yeah, vocal tone, actual intonation, and all those kinds of things. How do we, how do we develop that? How do we get people to come back into the world of understanding that tone? is something. They don't even have to, have to ever have to know the word tone. They just have to impart it and all those sorts of things. Old school communication, I think. I, I believe you're right about that. You know, um, it is old school. There was a, there was a time where uh, discourse was a valuable skill. Um, it's, it's still a valuable skill. It's just that not many of us are engaged in it um, with the same kind of expertise I think that maybe was there in, back in the Greek debates. I mean, it, it's more recent than that. I like to think about um, the, the sort of debates that formed the United States of America. Uh, those were probably fairly uh, heated and also fairly eloquent at the same time. But we're, we're way back at zero here. We're, we're at the place of, like, learning a new language. And even, I mean, let's say even if all we could do was holler at each other. Well, uh, there'd be emotion conveyed in that and becoming conscious of how your sounds convey your feelings might be a good place to start because it's possible to make a whole 
range of different kinds of haulers. And it's pretty obvious from how loud you are, for example, or how strident your sound is or how peaceful or mellow or sweet your sound is, that there's a different emotion in play. And it's possible, I think, for many of us who've never experienced emotions before to begin to feel them at that even basic level. It's, it, it's really fundamental to us to be able to make these sounds that we make. It's, it's, um, we're the first language that we know about, um, with the exception perhaps of the silent languages, and I know that animals are really good at them, or whales and dolphins who click and chirp. But we have this facility with language. How many languages are in the world? And yet, when it comes right down to it, if you see a, an infant say, Mama, you can tell the emotion in that infant's tone, regardless of whether you speak the fundamental language of that, of that's native to that baby. And, and I think awareness of that, which we all do, I, I believe we do subconsciously, but I think the conscious awareness of, of that is like bringing it up. And, and I say, okay, so Richard just said, that, what's, what's the emotional content of what it is that you said to me? And am I conscious of the emotional content that I'm bringing back to you? That's just as important as the words, you know, like the information. That's important because it helps you um, measure the authenticity of who's speaking. I've known coders like the one you mentioned too, um, and both kinds, the kinds that are, that are, um, that have no language really, for whatever reason, they're from a foreign nation, they don't speak English fluently or whatever. And then there's the ones who can put down their coding book and all of a sudden they can talk about Kierkegaard and philosophy and, you know, stuff like that with, with eloquence and ease. It's amazing to me, there's just this range. You talked about the spectrum earlier, the spectrum of amazing individuals in the world just incredible individuals in the world. And, and all of us are human, of course. The question is, how will we relate? How can we really become more connected, which we need these days, and, and uh, together work on things in however that together looks, rather than having to do it all in our isolated, non-communicative space? Well, and... And back to dogs for just a moment. Bring, I, I'm going to talk about pack in just a second, but I want to say this about dogs. Uh, when I'm around dogs that know me, you don't actually ever have to use a word with a dog. They're all about tone. I could make a sound, you know, just a, a, a no-like sound or some sort of just low-tone at a dog, at a dog that I hung out with a lot. And she'd know that she was, you know, you'd get the slow wagging tail, what I call the slow wagging tail, which is just a low, slow wag, like, okay, you busted me, I'll stop. Mm -hmm. Friendly, like, you know, it's not a, you're not like, no, not that as much as just like, hey, really? You know, that kind of thing. They don't right. really care. They're, they're, they're all about tone. They're not about how many words, you know, it's like when you watch people talk to a dog for way too long, you can always have the dog look at them like, I'm a dog. What? Yeah. Yeah. What are you saying to me? Why are you using so many words? Just tell me good, bad, treat, not treat, go over here, you know, just short terms. And so I, I, I like, <laughs> that's why I like dogs. They're real just like, okay, I get it. 
Now, back to the back to the pack part. We really are pack animals. We we really are, and yet we lead these isolated lives. Um, you know, on our devices, I see groups of, I don't know why it seems to be, but I see groups of young women sitting around the park, or, you know, and sometime when they're on street corners hanging out in between classes or after school, and they're all on their phones texting. And they might be laughing, because I think there are even times when they're texting each other, sitting next to each other, but mm-hmm. they're not actually communicating to each other they're, they think this, and I'm moving my thumbs rapidly. I'm not a great texter myself. I mean, I do it because it's a tool that's necessary sometimes. But it really amazes me how eye contact communication, and I don't mean we have to stare at each other endlessly, but we have to pay attention. Um, how, do we, how do we evolve that back up? How do we resurrect that? Is, is in your case... I know you do work in the corporate sector, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But how do we? How do you think we get that back into the world of a desire to set the device down, device down, uh, possibly add in a handful of being present in the moment and talk? Hey, talk! Oh, let's try that. How do we? Do you have a? Do you have a trick or a switch? <laughs> a well, piece? I'm sort of biased. Uh, music is very centering for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But my habit is not one where I go first to my device. I mean, if I'm, if I'm in a conversation with someone, uh, the device is not present. It, it just, I can't do that. It, it's not polite in the first place. <laughs> But um, with regard to your question of how it's going to happen, it, it, of course, it'll happen when conversation becomes uh, more interesting than the flat screen. And we're, we're on this slow evolutionary curve. Uh, we've already got Silicon Valley leading the way on not giving your kids flat screens. So yeah. it, it's coming, but it really has to be, we have to swing the other way off this pendulum. Technology has been so fascinating for the last, whatever, 50, 60 years now. But um, it, it's going to reach a place where it's so ubiquitous and boring that we're going to go back and do something else. Now, that's not true for every, everything, of course. I love to play online games. It's, it, it's amazing. And the communities that are forming now around things like Fortnite, it, it blows me away, Richard. I mean, it, 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 this is incredible that that many people would want to gather together for a reason. But in the other sense, it's also pretty incredible that hundreds of thousands of people will put down their flat screens in Hong Kong uh, to march for something that is meaningful to them and mm-hmm. how the communication so seamlessly happens to organize that stuff. There's no single organizer. It's like this hive mind that takes over and does it. And I would say it's very similar to uh, maybe a fundamental sort of herd and pack mentality that we humans are activating in that case. So those kinds of events give me hope because it shows that humans can come together and do something that really comes from the heart and is meaningful and has really not much to do with flat screens other than the media, of course, that covers it. But, I mean, if you're holding hands with somebody on both sides of you to make a human chain across Hong Kong Island, the one thing that is not happening is a selfie. <laughs> right? 
Now, yeah. I'm sure somebody's figured out how to do that with a drone or whatever. Yes. But you know yeah, what with I'm a saying? drone. Yeah. But, yes. but, you know, you chose human connection over digital to make yeah. that happen. And we, is the more of those kinds of moments that happen in our lives, I think, will gradually turn away from our primary communication being online and make that more of a maybe a balance or something between the primary communication and being online and the primary communication being one-to-one person-to-person or people-to-people well I think um, for (laughs) I'm laughing because the conundrum I have is I'm a fan of communication I'm I'm a fan of sitting and talking however I produce shows for other people, and I do this radio show. And I, one, A, I like live. I like this why I like this platform a lot because it's live. This is not edited. I will fix the beginning, but that's a separate issue. But I really like live. And I think that gathering, I, I think we've lost some of that. You know, in the in the classic movies where you have people, as I call it, scuffing in the dirt around a fire or getting yeah. around a fire and telling story. Yeah. And at least I, in America. I, I, it, at, at least, least in, in America. America. Right. We had scuffing around the fire, uh, scraping their feet in the earth, being in the earth, being present in some kind of either – it was called a ritual, but it was really a gathering where nobody was taking selfies. If somebody had one, they'd probably have a drone taking selfies. But – you know, really being present in the moment and being with each other, and you don't. There doesn't have to be a lot of communication. It could just be that is really huge. Yep. Because you're together in the moment, and there's a lot of power in that. Like you say, the people holding hands across China, that's an amazing thing. Or there was a there was an art piece decades ago, when I was at Sonoma State University, where Christo, Christo an artist, yes, built a cloth fence. 26 miles out to the coast of Sonoma County. Wasn't that gorgeous? And it was amazing. It was At first it was like, what is he doing? This guy's crazy. And then once you saw the completed project of this soft curtain on a wire so cows could get through, it was designed so no animals were harmed. It was just soft material. But it was 26 miles long all the way to the coast of Sonoma County. Yeah. yeah. And at one point there was a gathering of people hand-to-hand along that. And it was amazing. It just seemed like this dumb, simple, kind of hippie thing to do. But it was really once you saw photographs of it and you and you felt the energy of, you say, people holding hands end-to-end, it was mind-blowing. Transformative. Transformative. Because we're all in the moment together. Wow. That can really transform things. There's a uh, – you reminded me of saying Sonoma County. There's a response that we human beings have – to disaster and tragedy that is very beautiful. Uh, we can't always avoid the acts of God or the natural disasters that happen, but in their aftermath, you'll find people very connected and out of great need, clearly. But we can do this. We're good at it. If your house is burned down and you need a place to stay, uh, you can find people who will help you. That's uh, remarkable in in how good we are at it that we don't do it more frequently without waiting for the natural disaster. Mm-hmm. We're good at this. I mean, it's a built-in skill that we have to connect and 
be authentic and leverage the energy from that connection to accomplish things that we couldn't do alone. And we could be putting that to work, of course, if you work in a corporation or any large organization, you understand that. But we're talking about more authentic things here. Uh, we're talking about the basics of just caring for one another and you know, showing appreciation, being able to say hello to somebody on the street without fear of being punched. <laughs> you know, that this, is, uh, this is something that we, we do. Uh, we're built this way. So if we can leverage that in the good times, by practicing some of those skills, uh, we can really go much further than we're able to go if we just save it for the disasters. Uh, they're not tough skills. and pretty easy to do. And if you need any help with them, just watch your dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or your I'll cat, say, you depending know, on the kind of person yeah, you are. Yeah, cats too. No, I'm not opposed to cats. It's just dogs are better at communicating. Cats are a little more like, eh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dogs are easier to read. They give you immediate feedback. <laughs> it's they can't hide the action from their tail. You know, their yeah. their emotions come out of their tail. It's either, you know, it can be up, it can be down, it can be low, it can be, watch the dog. They'll, they're good indicators. They're like weather barometers. They give you instant feedback. It's really good. Cats are a little, ah. Uh, yeah, they're indifferent. Yeah. They're indifferent. <laughs> You're on your own in this one, buddy. Good luck. You know, yep. that kind of thing. That kind of thing. Like exactly. Them. I do yeah. like cats. And how do you, how do you work with people? Well, let's talk about the corporate structure because you do work in the business world, and yes. you're talking about now the title of your book is More Than Human, The Value of Cultivating the Human Spirit in Your Organization. So how do you get organizations to think spiritually? And I have to sidebar that for a moment to ask you to define spiritual and then tell us how you get organizations to think that's a good idea. Yes. Well, to start with the good idea, it turns out that things like appreciation and gratitude and kindness and all of those amazing sort of forward-focused attributes of human beings are also best practices in business. It, a company that is kind to its suppliers has suppliers that want to do good things for the company, and that works for customers too. And uh, I've always been a, in the customer service end of IT, so I'm the guy who takes the calls. It used to be called tech support. I don't know what it's called now. They say it's customer care, but I don't feel very cared for when I call my cell phone company. I don't know how you do, but uh, that, that whole aspect of showing your best self uh, when you're doing things is a best practice. And there's research on this now. And I met a PhD who's doing her dissertation on gratitude. It's, it's beautiful that these things have come to the fore. Well, I, you could call them something else. I mean, attributes of being human. I don't know. It, but it turns out that if you can just be more kind, you will be happier. If you can show appreciation, people will want to do things for you instead of resenting it. Uh, these are fundamental ways that human beings are. And, and the fact that we have to go back and like revisit them and teach them again and actually have research that shows that gratitude is a plus, it, it's always amusing to me. So um, in that world of all these sort of attributes that are sparked up by our human spirit, there's some science 
there's a lot of research, but nobody's really getting under the hood and saying why. And they're, they're self-evident, Richard. It, it, you don't have to go very far to know that it's much nicer to say thank you to somebody or to say hello if you're on the street than punch them. <laughs> it's just, you know, the one is not, counter, is not really helping you in, in a positive way. Um, so there, there's, this, um, there's this built-in sense that inside of us there are these things that in the past we've not really, like, let them out to play. Like me, back in the IT coding box, I wasn't going to play Pac-Man. Maybe I should have. Who, who knows? But if you're a person who's fundamentally a nice guy and you work in an environment where being a nice guy is, is not tolerated, I just have to ask why. Being nice is a best practice. We got evidence. So why are you still being like rude to me, boss that I like to work for because, you know, I like you, whatever the, the reason. There's just no place for that in best practices organization. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. There are ways to be um, manipulated, and there are ways to manipulate. And that could be a a spiritual best practice, too. Like, if you're helping your people to be more kind, that's a manipulation in a way. It's not a bad one. So you have this choice of whether you're going to direct a team toward best practices or direct a team away from it. And that overarching sort of skill comes from who you are inside, who you are inside and how you want to best live out your purpose in life. And we're getting to a place where those things are valued more and more. And so things like being kind, showing respect, those things are, are valued more and more as well. And in spite of the way things look and how, how angry the media wants us to see the world, at a fundamental level, people are beginning to do uh, old school practices that that are fundamental to who we are. They're starting to cooperate and collaborate. And in the world of getting along and actually making something happen, it's gone back to fundamentals. And, and that's exciting. It really is. How nice it is to work in business when your business has integrity. And it's not out to screw somebody, you know, or systemically screw a whole bunch of people. We're becoming more aware of these things. And the conversations aren't easy. But when you think about racism, fundamentally, we're all human beings. The color of your skin doesn't make as much a difference as what's inside of you. Like, what, what's going on in your heart? What's your soul saying to me right now? That's where the conversation is getting pointed. We've hit that, we've hit that crazy wall of just not great feelings and stuff. And, and we're starting to swing the other way and to get back into what really matters, what's really fundamental. So I don't know if I really defined the term spiritual for you right now, but I like to say that, yes, yeah, the stuff, that, that the expression of the human spirit. But let's take it a little bit further because we know a lot about the physical world and a lot about the emotional one, a lot about the mental one. And I like to say if it isn't physical, emotional, or mental, it's probably something else that we could call spiritual. Consciousness, um, the eighth dimension, whatever they're working on in, in the theory of everything. All that stuff that we don't know, just sweep it together and call it spiritual. And let's go on now and talk about how to practice what really matters, the best spiritual practices, best practices of the human spirit. Well, one of the things that comes to mind, I was going to ask this, but I think I 
now that you've said that, I think I already know the answer. I've always been a fan of kindness is free. doesn't cost anything. I don't have to tip excessively. Having been in the restaurant business, I tend to tip excessively, but it's really kindness. Kindness is we can all be kind to each other. Do we have to be mean and yelling and shouting and lying and all that? I mean, just so is is kindness a spiritual practice? Well, I feel that it is, you know, versus disrespect or deceit or rudeness. That stuff doesn't work. I mean, you'll get what you want, which is to be left alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, you can't be left alone and force people out of your life for very long without it having some kind of an effect on you physically, mentally, or emotionally. It's, it's not satisfying at a deep level. And the, most, the people most in need of kindness are often the, one, often the ones with the hardest road. Uh, I'm thinking of a bunch of homeless people that I know who are served so beautifully by the agencies that care for them and help them find housing and get shelter and services and all the things that you need if you're homeless. Uh, you can't be rude or dismissive in any way and expect to end your, your problems, whatever they might be, homelessness, lack of money, whatever. If you're keeping people out who want to be there for you and want to connect with you and want to help you, that's not such a great plan if your objective is to change your situation. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to open up. And we do that naturally. So oftentimes these behaviors that keep people separate are things that we learn, whether for survival. Often that's true. It's certainly true with dogs. You can see a dog that's been abused is much different effect than a, a dog that hasn't. Uh, and, and it's possible to recover from those things, provided that there's an opening, provided that you're willing to say, gosh, Richard, all this happened, and I did. It was terrible. It was awful. But I need to change because I can't keep doing that. Help. Mm-hmm. Show me how. And can you talk a bit uh, – we can go a few minutes over. Would you talk a bit about your work with veterans? Because I think that's another arena of such power. I, I'm, I'm completely anti-war. I'm completely pro-veteran, just for – clarity for everybody. I, I um, love that statement. It's, you know, in, in both Israel and Palestine, you're conscripted into military service, and there's an organization over there of combat veterans of war that is supported and attended by both Palestinian and Israeli soldiers. Hmm. And they do it for just the reason that you mentioned. They have to care for each other. They were, they made, they were made to do these things, and they're not going to go alone into whatever happens next. That's a, that's a tough one, because being a soldier, being a sailor, a seaman, um, there's a camaraderie that goes into military service that you lose when you become a veteran. Your team goes away. It's like when you, if you stepped out of the kitchen, right? That team that you were with for so long, if you never saw them again, and what do you do in life? So uh, transitioning from military service to the private sector, that to be a civilian again, you're never really going to be a civilian. It's a tough thing because the people that you've counted on for sometimes many years are no longer there by your side. Your battle buddy's not there. Um, the, the cohesion that was built into that team through all the practicing and drilling that you did is gone. 
the shared camaraderie where you were able to deal with events and opportunities and difficulties together is no longer there. So it makes that transition very difficult. And there are so many amazing people, civilians and veterans alike, that have worked hard to make sure that wherever a veteran enters the civilian world, there's a soft landing. That might be transitioning as an officer to a job in a corporation. It might be transitioning as an infantryman or uh, into uh, becoming a union worker. It might not be transitioning at all. It might be coming out so messed up that you can't do anything for yourself physically, emotionally, or mentally because of post-traumatic stress or experience whatever it is. And there are so many organizations and people who are dedicated to making sure that every kind of veteran that is coming a newly minted veteran, if we can call them that, that's coming into the civilian world, um, has a pathway that's that's set up for them and people who will care for them and guide them down the road as, to make them as successful in the civilian world as they were, or even more than they were in military service. It's a lifetime of service. The military will change you, and there's no way to unchange what you learn there. But you do have an opportunity to become more open and more willing and more curious based on your experience and see if you can reform that camaraderie and that closeness and the associations that you had in the military uh, in the civilian world as well. Oftentimes other veterans step up and take those roles and it's not unusual to see uh, seasoned veterans who have their close in also veteran comrades that inform and advise them in their civilian career, similar to the way that they had in the, uh, in the military. There's a whole interesting uh, group of veterans who started their own uh, back east that started a cannabis grow for veterans with veterans. So they're coming back together as a team. Uh, I went to college with Vietnam veterans. I'm with that vintage. Yes. I did not serve. And now there's a group of veterans back east who are doing this cannabis grow because I go to cannabis conferences and I'm there for the lectures and for the speakers and the medicinal, I want to know about the health aspects, the benefits of using cannabis. Yes. And it's so fascinating to me to see some of these veterans and it's particularly the, I don't know why it is, but the Vietnam vets have a particular patina of like old salty sailors. And I mean that in a kind and loving way, but they're really, they've been in this a long time. Yeah. And they are, I, I cannot use any of the words they would use when they come up to the microphone to a panel and say, you know, I'm getting grief because I want to use cannabis to control my anxiety. And the VA is telling me that if I use cannabis, they won't give me my other medications. Isn't that the craziest thing in the world? The craziest thing imaginable. They've managed it for decades using cannabis, but now they're saying, no, we'll take it away if you, you, you know, all that kind of, anyway. Exactly. So to see a grow where they're doing it to, again, gather as a group, because as you say, particularly having worked with vets in college and been around a lot of them who were fresh from the war, that to have them form an organization where they get to come back together, work as a team, and work with each other for the benefit of if they, not everybody there has to smoke or chooses to smoke, but they're all there working together with a goal of producing cannabis to help support veterans. That's, and I think uh, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. Right? 
It's it's that's it's necessary. Yeah. yeah. The the Vietnam era veterans are so amazing because they came back to nothing, and um, we did a great disservice to the men and women who served that era by not having um, not even a welcome home, but by not having the services and things that they were going to need. So a lot of them have worked to turn the VA into the um, the, the organization it is today um, and to start residential treatment and recovery centers like Veterans Village in San Diego, which was started by Vietnam era veterans when the VA said, no, we're not going to help you. And they, they literally did something the VA told them that they uh, that the VA was not going to do. <laughs> so um, thumbing your nose at the VA among veterans is amazing because it opens up these organizations like the Cannabis Grow. Uh, it, it, it forces veterans who are committed to find new ways and offer new um, solutions and opportunities. And thank heaven they did, because now we have something America's never experienced before, which is a, a war that's gone on for almost 20 years. So we have veterans all the time, not just after a conflict. And it's overwhelming to the VA and uh, to most of us in society. Uh, we've just kind of gotten tone deaf, but we're still um, making new veterans at an astonishing rate. And they all need service of some kind. And we owe that to them. We definitely owe that. Whether it's through the VA or through the NGO world or just individually doing something nice for the veteran who's on the street corner every week, you know, with a sign. Do it. You know, just go with it. It's it's so important. And yeah. if you can't afford a dollar, uh, hand them a power bar or just say thank you. Or um, and, and a caution, thank you for your service is, is kind of old these days. Mm-hmm. But a heartfelt thank you is, you know, these these are men and women that pledge their lives. I don't know how to say thank you to somebody like that. I really don't. I've tried. But believe me, I think that people understand if you if you just show up. I've had people come to me and, you know, they they want to say something, but they can't. That you can tell they're all locked up, but their eyes say it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, just reach out and take their hand and just acknowledge the fact that there's something going on there that's important. Uh, that's, that's, that's what Vietnam veterans have done for us. They've opened us up to that potential that wasn't given to them. They've given us a great gift. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that moment also when you're – because I've had the same experience with veterans – sometimes at these conferences where I have questions for them afterwards. And at first they're a little gruff and grumpy and, you know, like, again, languaging I can't use. Um, And yet there's that moment if you have the opportunity to shake their hand and you look into each other's eyes, for them to actually be seen Mm -hmm. and acknowledge that they're seen in that moment has brought us both to tears. Yeah. And I don't mean we're sobbing, but I mean it is a moment of, oh, my God, you actually see me as a human being. Yes. You don't understand my experience, but you're acknowledging that I exist. Because that's huge because, as you say, particularly the Vietnam vets came back to zero. Yeah. No acknowledgement, no you know, World War I, World War II parades, no nothing. They were just like, we don't want to talk about it. Did you so see that? that. That uh, I think was might have been last week, but the story of a, a KIA, so a, a pilot shot down over Vietnam, his remains were finally recovered, and they brought him home to Dallas uh, to, for the burial. Uh, you can Google this. There's lots of video out there. But it was Southwest Airlines that flew him from California to Dallas, and the plane was piloted 
by the veteran's son. Mm. They came home to Dallas, which was the airport where his son had said goodbye for the last time. And the scene in the terminal is, and on the tarmac, is so respectful. It's, um, it's just so heartening, I'm sure, for many Vietnam vets who can feel it much deeper than I do, uh, to see a welcome home for one of their brothers like that. Uh, that's, you know, that, that's put one in the good column, right? Yeah, yeah. We're doing something right. And, yes. and it's, it's really meaningful. It's really meaningful. Yeah. People would have paid to be in that airport that day, and the lucky people who were there got to be witnesses to this. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Um, I'm surprised to say that we're at that moment. <laughs> we're, we're actually here already. Um, we'll have to have you, uh, I'll have to have you back so we can do a whole different show on musiccare.net. Yeah, how to awesome. create and music rights, because that's a whole different category. Well, not re- it's 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 in the same conversation, but it's a different way of expressing it, which I think is really powerful. You're well said. Uh, and how do where would you like people to find you? Where would you like to people uh, have people find more than human? The value of cultivating the human spirit in your organization. So more than human, of course, is on Amazon, and uh, look for the one that's by Paratsman. There's a fantastic sci-fi novel out there with the same title <laughs> throwing a free plug for him so wow. more than human uh, human spirit in your organization Protzman, whatever you'll find me on amazon and i have to let you know because this book came out of my volunteer work with the san diego veterans coalition that there's a give back so um sales of this book help support the san diego veterans coalition and i'm proud to be a part of that organization and to support it this way of uh, the underlying research some of the underlying research was done by the army and it was done. Wow. It was resilience research, and they realized, hey, you can't be resilient unless your spirit's connected. You got to have a spiritual soul. I mean, short story, but more than human is on Amazon. And of course, once you find anything that's related to me, including the show notes, you'll be able to Google for me and find me all over the place. Um, there's articles out there on places like Your Tango and the Goodman Project and Psychology Today. And um, I keep a little archive of things that I feel are useful at a site called Practical Heart Skills, which is also in the show notes. So lots of different ways to engage. I'm pretty public. Uh, I don't know if my phone number is published anywhere, but if you need to talk to me, um, send me a note. You can do that from all the websites. And uh, we'll talk. We'll get together on the phone. I'm happy to connect in that way. It's got to be done one-to-one. It really does. And uh, doing that well means that the person who talks to me will go and share that with somebody else and and open up a possibility for that other person too. So that's what we're doing here really today, Richard, is just reaching out to people in a one-to-one fashion. Great. Thank you very much, Bill. This has been a great conversation. We went places I didn't even know we were going to go, but I had really a a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. you. All right, everybody. Have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.